Again, good morning, Redeemer. It is good to be with you. Again, Keith said it. I didn't know how many people were going to be here today. I thought it was going to be like the early COVID days when I had the privilege of preaching to a camera. And there was eight or nine of us in the room. So this is amazing. And, and welcome to all of you at, at home as well. And uh, I praise God that we can still worship from afar. Isn't it good that when we are sick and when it's best to stay home, we can still sit at home and hear God's word and worship together. So this morning I'll have you open up your Bibles with me to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Today is Palm Sunday, and it is the day that we remember Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And uh, on that day, a large crowd greeted Jesus Christ as he came down the Mount of Olives with joy and applause. As they looked at Jesus, they saw a king, and in fact, they were pretty sure that they were seeing the king, the Messiah, the Messiah in the line of David who had finally come to set them free. So they were overjoyed. And with more joy even than the cute kids in front, they were waving their palm branches, crying out, Hosanna, Lord, save us. However, we know the story well. Less than a week later, the crowd had dispersed. They, had, they were left feeling disenchanted and disoriented. And they left because the king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey was not the king that they had expected. No. Friends, Palm Sunday reminds us that God does not always operate according to our expectations. Isn't that true? This morning is evidence of that, isn't it? Palm Sunday reminds us that we see through a glass dimly. And the crowd, they they hailed Jesus as the Messiah. And in in fact, they were right in doing so. And when they looked and they saw Jesus, they they anticipated victory, deliverance. And again, these these were good things and they were right to do so. But the problem is, they didn't understand the true plan of God. They had a different means of victory than God had intended The nature of Jesus' kingship was not what they had set their hopes on. You see, these good Jews had grown up hearing the Messianic Psalms. They had grown up in wonder, just waiting with expectation for the King to come who would rule and reign and restore Israel. Unfortunately, their expectations were misguided. And their their expectations kept them from understanding what their King Jesus was to about to accomplish for them. And friends, I just want to say, this is a scenario that plays itself out all the time. People constantly hear the Word of God, they hear Jesus preached, but they walk away. Because He's a different Jesus than they anticipated. Maybe there's some of you here this morning who have rejected Jesus because He's not the King that you think that you need. Friends, that's why we come back to God's Word week in and week out. We nourish ourselves every day with it because we need to know the Jesus of the Scriptures. Amen? Because the Jesus of your imagination is not the one that can save you, but the Jesus of the Bible, He can. So today we're going to turn our attention to one of the Messianic Psalms, And it's one of the psalms that that pointed forward to the perfect king. Now this was a psalm that that Solomon 
most likely wrote shortly after he had assumed the throne of his father David. Those were big shoes to fill, right? Because King David was a good, good king. He was a man after God's own heart. So this psalm that King Solomon wrote was a big, faith-filled prayer. But beyond just a prayer for, for Solomon, it was a prayer that pointed forward to the Messiah King. Because I think Solomon knew in his heart, and I think every Israelite knew in their heart, that no mere earthly king would ever live up to the demands of Psalm 72. It is a prayer that could never find fulfillment in a sinful man. So commentator Derek Kidner says here, as a royal psalm, that is a psalm that spoke of the king of Israel, it prayed for the reigning king and was a strong reminder of his high calling. But catch this. Yet it exalted this so far beyond the humanly attainable as to suggest for its fulfillment no less a person than the Messiah. The people of God were supposed to read this psalm, see the king, and know a greater king is coming. A greater king is coming. He's going to fulfill and satisfy all of our longings. And friends, on the first Palm Sunday, the Israelites, seeing Jesus ride down on a donkey, the Mount of Olives, They had good expectations that this Jesus could be the one. As they saw him riding down, as the palm branches were being waved, they thought maybe this is the Messiah of Psalm 72. What were they excited about? Well, we're going to look at Psalm 72 and see a portrait of the king that we're longing for. This morning, we're going to make our way slowly through the text, unpacking it as we go. So look now with me to Psalm 72, verse 1 to 2. Hear now from the holy, all-necessary, inspired, inerrant word of God. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. What we see in these opening verses is that the king that we are longing for, the king that Israel was longing for, will reign with justice and righteousness. The king for which Israel and for which you and I have been longing for is one who will always do only what is right. He will be a king that is just. There's going to be no unfairness in any of his decisions. No one will get away with a single wrong with this king. Every wrong will be righted. And this king will be righteous. His conduct will be blameless. His life will be the epitome of goodness. His life will conform to the law that, the God, that God put down in the Ten Commandments. He will fulfill them perfectly. Now, King Solomon, he prayed that he could be such a king. And from his earliest days, he got off to a strong start, didn't he? Who remembers King Solomon's lying in bed and the Lord appears to him in a vision? And what did King Solomon ask the Lord for? Somebody can yell out. Wisdom. He didn't ask for power and riches. No, he asked for wisdom because he knew that he was going to need that to rule such a great people. And he was such a wise king, in fact, people flocked from all over to hear him and to learn from him. The Queen of Sheba, she came to offer him gifts, and she declared this, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you, 
and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the love, the Lord loved Israel forever, He has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. So there was justice. There was righteousness in Solomon's reign. But friends, it was only a glimpse. It whet the appetite of the people of Israel because like every other leader, every other leader who would go before Solomon and would come again, his reign was tainted with sin. He broke God's commandments. He married many wives from other nations. He committed adultery. He adopted their customs. And his sin brought about the ruin of the nation. And eventually the united tribes of Israel would go on to split into the northern tribes and the southern tribes. That would happen just under Solomon's reign, Solomon's son's reign. And friends, isn't it true of all leaders? All human leaders fall short of what we're longing for. Isn't that true? Even the best of them, they fall short because even the best leaders still, still fall under the indictment of Romans 3, which says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. If you're putting all of your hope in a human leader, you're going to be disappointed. Whether that's a pastor, whether that's an elder, whether that's a spouse, you're going to be disappointed because none is righteous, none is blameless, none is capable of ruling with perfect Justice and history bears witness to the sad reality. Every human leader will ultimately fall short, except for one. As the crowd saw Jesus coming down Mount, the Mount of Olives, they recognized him as the king who they had been waiting for. And they allowed themselves to ask the question could this be the one? Could this be the son of David that, that we have been? waiting for. We've been waiting for a king who is going to rule with perfect justice, who will be perfectly righteous. Could this be the one? Their hope was in the right place, but they unfortunately completely misunderstood how Jesus would show his justice. They, they, they assumed that he would immediately gather a large army and wage war and bring judgment upon Rome. So they were perplexed when Jesus allowed himself to be taken into custody without a fight. How, how could our king, how could he usher in justice and righteousness while he's in handcuffs? While he's on trial? While he's in captivity? Their misguided expectations could not account for the fact that Jesus, the just and righteous king, also needed to address the sins of his people. They failed to realize that, that it was because of his very justice and righteousness that he surrendered himself to be crucified. It wasn't, Jesus wasn't caught off guard. No, he went knowing. Because Jesus came ultimately to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God. That's what we're going to celebrate in a few days, aren't we, on Good Friday? At the cross. The king we're longing for will reign with justice and righteousness. And as a result, number two, he will usher in peace and prosperity.
Look now with me at verses 3 to 7. Solomon continues his prayer. He says, Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Good leadership is a blessing. And when the king reigns with justice and righteousness, everyone in the kingdom is going to reap the rewards. This was Solomon's prayer as he began his reign. And once again, we did catch a glimpse of this in his reign. You remember Solomon's reign as the king of Israel was the absolute high watermark in Israel's history. You know, David had been the warrior king, and he established peace for Israel and its borders. And as a result, he handed a king, or forgive me, a kingdom to Solomon that had experienced peace on every border. And in this season of peace, Solomon's wisdom also led to prosperity. The kind that we see described in verses 15 to 16 of this psalm. Look there with me now. It says, Long may he, that is, long may the king live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. And blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. You see, the the Israelites caught an obvious glimpse of this prosperity when Queen Sheba, or Queen of Sheba, forgive me, came from far away bringing 9,000 pounds of gold to Solomon as a tribute. They caught a glimpse of that prosperity, right? Because the rising tide floats all ships, and Solomon's accrual of wealth, wealth was good for the nation. So so there was, in fact, a peace and a prosperity in Solomon's reign. However, you probably knew that was coming, it was also tainted with sin. And sadly, when Solomon died and passed the kingdom on to his son, Rehoboam, the Israelites came to the new king, and they complained this way, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Isn't that sad? Even the great prosperity that Solomon's reign ushered in, the next generation, they said, come on, we were still hurting. As prosperous as Solomon's reign was, it didn't resemble the rain falling on the freshly mown grass that this psalm longs for. There was still poverty in Israel. There were still people who felt lost in the system. The prosperity that they enjoyed under Solomon's reign was still tainted with inequity, with burden. And the peace that Israel enjoyed, sadly, was a fleeting peace. It didn't last forever either. Within a generation, they were at war with themselves. Can you you imagine that? Solomon's reign is the high watermark of Israel. And the next king, under him, just like that, there's already a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom would be overrun by Assyria. 
the southern kingdom would fall to the Babylonians. They would live in subjugation to the Medes, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and then to the Romans. That's where the, the crowd on Palm Sunday, as they lived under Roman subjugation, they were overjoyed as they saw Jesus because they said, finally, finally a king who's actually going to usher in lasting peace and prosperity. Right? Finally, the poor are going to be lifted out of their poverty. Finally, all the tyrants, the bad leaders, are going to be gone. But again, their expectations were out to lunch, weren't they? Because Jesus didn't come in to destroy the Romans, no. He came in to usher a peace that the Israelites needed far more. It was a peace that they didn't know they needed. Jesus came to this earth to bring us back to peace with God. He came to reconcile us. He came to pay for our sin so that we could be restored to the right relationship with God that we were made for. And the perfect king also came in to usher us prosperity. But it wasn't a prosperity that lined up with what the people wanted. He came to make them rich toward God. And the riches that he accrued for them, he stored in heaven. Jesus told us, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This wasn't the peace, this wasn't the prosperity that the Jews had anticipated, that they thought they needed. So they were perplexed, they were disillusioned when Jesus was handcuffed, put on trial, nailed to a cross. And friends, let's make sure we don't fall into the same trap. The Messiah King did not come to give you a rich inheritance in this life. He didn't come so that you would have all the health and wealth and prosperity that you long for. If that's what you are longing for, if that's what you think Jesus did come for, then you're going to be sadly, sadly mistaken, and the cross itself will look like foolishness to you. Friends, for those of us who know the Lord, who have put our trust in Him, maybe we're guilty of preaching that. Don't put your hands up, but have you ever been in the position where you so badly want to see somebody come to Christ that you're afraid to say that coming to Christ will cost you something? Right? Sometimes we blunt that edge that Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. He didn't promise treasures in this life. No. But, while our hope is deferred, it is certain. Make no mistake. Jesus has brought us peace through his cross, and he has invited us to share in his inheritance. Peter tells us that our inheritance the glorious inheritance is kept in heaven for us, guarded, undefiled. It's waiting for Jesus to come back, us bring us there. So there's prosperity, but we have to wait for that. And it's not what we're anticipating. It's not what the world is anticipating. The king that we're longing for will reign with justice and righteousness, and he will usher in peace and prosperity. And this great blessing is going to stretch far beyond us. His authority will be all-encompassing. And that's the next thing that we see in our passage. The king we are longing for will have dominion 
from sea to sea. We see this in verse 8 to 11. Look there with me. Solomon continues his prayer. He says, May he, the king, have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. This prayer envisions a kingdom that stretches across the globe. A reign that is felt even by the nomads living in the arid deserts. The enemies of this king will recognize Jesus' authority and they will fall down face first in homage to him. They will lick the dust in their reverence. Tribute was brought to Solomon from Sheba. Even still, though, his authority never reached to the extent that this psalm was looking towards. In fact, no king's authority has ever. Alexander the Great, he did the unthinkable when he stretched his authority from the Mediterranean all the way into Asia. 1,500 years later, Genghis Khan surpassed Alexander's accomplishment with a kingdom that covered some 9 million square miles. 700 years later, the British monarchy surpassed even that as King George V ruled over 25% of all the world's land surface. And yet, and yet as remarkable as that sounds, they pale in comparison to the rule that Psalm 72 was painting. The perfect king, friends, is going to have a worldwide rule. His reign will be from sea to sea, covering the entire globe. And this is what the prophet Zechariah saw in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 to 10. He says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, that is what the crowd was thinking of as Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. The king of Zechariah's prophecy, the Messiah king of Psalm 72, the one who would rule with justice and righteousness, who would bring in peace and prosperity, the king who would rule from sea to sea had come. But how does a king assume such a position? The crowd in Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday assumed, rightfully, they rightfully assumed, misguided as they were, that Jesus would amass an army and wage war against Rome. That's what they were envisioning. Their expectations revolved around political influence, military force, and geographical dominance. So what a shock it must have been as Jesus willfully gave himself up. Gave himself up in the garden, was tried without a word, and was crucified. Is it any wonder that the Palm Sunday crowd was nowhere to be found on Good Friday, just five days later? The cross looks 
like the opposite of power. Is that not true? The cross looks like humiliation. It looks like submission and defeat. But the Messiah King had greater plans than a mere military coup. Praise God for that. Jesus did come to overthrow the rulers, the powers, and the authorities, but it wasn't the authorities that the Jews had in mind. Jesus came to overthrow the spiritual rulers and authorities, and at the cross, He accomplished this great victory. As it says in Colossians 2, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. The cross was victory. Down was the way up. And when Jesus rose from the grave, He rose with authority. With the keys of death and hell, He rose as the King who reigns over all of heaven and all earth. And just before He ascended to His rightful place in His heavenly throne, He said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. All authority in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All nations, that's another way of saying from sea to sea. Let my rule be known across the globe, because Jesus now possesses all authority. Friends, we are called, therefore, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, as His servants, to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation and declare this simple message that Jesus is the King. We make disciples, we baptize, and we teach them to obey the King who reigns over all the earth. And as these men and women, boys and girls, come to know the Lord as their King, they will delight in His reign as He is the perfect King. The King who delivers the needy. That's the fourth thing that we see. Let's jump back in the text. Look with me to verse 11 to 14. Solomon says, May all kings fall down before Him, all nations serve Him, for He delivers the needy when He calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, He redeems their life. And precious is their blood in His sight. Why should the kings fall down before the perfect king? Why should the nations serve Him? Why is it good news that His dominion stretches from sea to sea? It's good news because He delivers the needy when He calls. That's why the word for is in verse 12. It's another way of saying, because Jesus cares for the least of these. He is a king who is not only high and lofty, but one who cares for the downtrodden, for the one that the world forgets about. Jesus' universal reign is good news for the world because he is the merciful king that we need, full of pity, full of love, full of power. Solomon wanted to be this king, right? That's why he wrote this psalm. He was praying, God, I want to be a king like this. But inevitably, he fell short. Right? We long for these kind of leaders. Leaders who are powerful, competent, and yet who associate with the lowly. 
But it doesn't matter. Think of the most competent, lowly, generous, wise leader that you can think of. Put them in the position of prime minister. Do you think for a second that they could make a dent in any of the problems facing our great nation? Could they find a home for over 20,000 children who are currently wards of the state? Could they find a solution for the more than 235,000 people who experience homelessness every year? Could that great leader even begin to comfort the 593 reported victims of human trafficking in Canada this past year? The best leaders that we can muster simply do not have the capacity for the immense need that exists all around us. They don't have the financial capacity. They don't have the emotional capacity. They don't possess the wisdom. No, the, great, the need is far too great for any earthly leader. Therefore, therefore, we need a king who is omnipotent. We need a king who is all-powerful. We need a king who is omniscient, who sees all things and knows all things. We need a king who is omnipresent, one who, who knows about the powerful people, but who also knows about the dark and lonely places where the broken and the downcast often reside. We need a king while possessing all the power in that high and lofty position still cares about the least of these. And that's who Jesus is. You know, I love teaching the kids, and this morning was great. I love it. They're so cute. Kind of distracting, but it's a good distraction, is it not? It's good. And uh, one of the things I love about teaching the kids is that I'm not going to use the word dumb down because that's wrong. The kids here are brilliant. And uh, let me just commend you, many of you parents, most of you parents, you, you train up your children to know God's word. And uh, usually what happens is that I get to the point in the story where I think I'm going to stump them. And one kid puts up his hand up. Before I even ask the question, he knows the answer. And I go, oh, you got to be kidding me. But praise God for that, right? Praise God that they know God's word. But what I love about teaching them is that, I'll be honest, I am most struck and in awe of Jesus Christ when I am preparing a lesson for the kids in there. And as I see their faces, because the children, like when, when you're teaching kids, you, you need to make them feel You need to wave your arms, right? You need to jump and be emotional. You need to be enthusiastic to keep their attention. And sometimes when when you're telling them, you know, for example, you're teaching them about when Jesus taught, uh, forgive me, fed the 5,000, you you need to tell them, do do you guys understand this? How amazing this is with five fish, five loaves of bread and two fish. He fed 5,000 people, plus the kids, plus the moms. And they, sometimes they look at you like, whoa. But for the most part, You know, they're still tired. They don't pay attention. But selfishly, in those moments, I see just the amazing, awesome power, graciousness, love, and kindness of Jesus. When I'm teaching the kids, I'm just, I'm put in awe of all that he is. Jesus truly is the one who cares for the needy. The one with the most power and the most authority is the one who is the quickest to bend his knee and condescend. Isn't that true? In Jesus' earthly ministry, there was not one person who was beneath him. There wasn't one need that was beneath him. He washed the feet of the disciples. They weren't wearing shoes like us. No, they had sandals on. Their feet would have been dirty. It was a servant's job. But Jesus 
did that. When people were shooing away the children, what did he do? He said, let them come to me. He welcomed them. He embraced those with contagious diseases. He ate with the tax collectors. He healed the sick, and he gave sight to the blind. He surrounded himself with the poor and the disenfranchised. And as I love telling the kids, he was never, ever, ever too busy for somebody. He was always full of compassion. And then, in the most perfect display of love and mercy, he took on our neediness. He took on our sin, the sins of his enemies. He took them upon himself. He was forsaken by God the Father on the cross, and he paid for our sin in full. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over the world. But he is also with us. He's with us always to the end of the age. You know, Solomon's citizens complained that he had made their burdens heavy. He put a heavy yoke upon them. But what does Jesus say? He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, that's our king. He cares for the needy. He meets us in our weakness. And the best part about the king that we are longing for is that his reign will endure forever. Amen? His rule will endure forever. As we conclude, look with me now to verses 17 to 19. Solomon says of the king, May his name endure, forgive me, this is, yes, may may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. And he ends with this praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The reign of David, Solomon, Hezekiah, and Josiah, and every other good king that ruled over God's people eventually ended in death. This is one of the tragedies of this fallen world, that even the good leaders, even the good kings eventually die, and often they are succeeded by lesser kings, by lesser men, lesser women. Solomon was replaced by his foolish son, Rehoboam, whose ineptitude caused the kingdom to break in two. Hezekiah was replaced by his evil son Manasseh. Josiah was replaced by his wicked son Jehoahaz, who only reigned for three months before the kingdom was handed over to Josiah's other evil son, Jehoiakim. Good kings come and good kings go. One leader leads the nation to a time of success, of prosperity, but the next sets them back a decade or more. One leader roots out systemic corruption, but the next makes his fortune off of bribes. Every time that we think we've found somebody, every time Israel thought they found the one, what happened is it ended in disaster. Because, friends, there's only one. There's only one throne that will not be succeeded. There's only one king who will reign forever more, and his name is Jesus, and he is the king that we're longing for. He was the king over our grandparents, 
and our great-grandparents. He's going to reign over our children and our grandchildren and their grandchildren, should the Lord tarry. As Charles Spurgeon once said, Charlemagne, Maximilian, Napoleon, how they flit like shadows before us. They were and are not, but Jesus forever is. Jesus is the righteous and just King. He is ushered in peace and prosperity for His people. He reigns from sea to sea. He is the deliverer of the needy, and He will remain forevermore. This is the King who rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to shouts of Hosanna. This is the King who a few days later would go to the cross to set His people free. And this is the King who is seated on the throne right now. Friends, as, as, we come to, forgive me, as we come to a conclusion, let me ask, have you put your trust in this king? Have you, have you bowed down? Have you paid homage to him? Have you let Jesus shatter all of your expectations? All of your preconceived notions of what the Savior should look like? Have you? Maybe you're here this morning and you've heard the gospel time in, time again, but you've never fully bowed the knee to Jesus. Well, let me ask you, what are you waiting for? I can promise you he is far greater than you can imagine. Come, I I plead with you, come, come to him and let him blow your expectations out of the water. He loves you. He went to the cross for you so that you would not have to spend an eternity apart from Him, bearing your sin. No, He went to the cross. First before that, He came and He lived the life that you and I could never live. Every moment of His life was perfect. Every moment of His life was was, was in conformity to the will of God. And then He died. Though He had no sin of His own, He died to bear your sin, to bear my sin the people that were mocking him. And he rose again in victory. Put your trust in him, I plead with you. Put your trust in him. Bow to him. Because friends, whether you are I acknowledge him or not, he is the king. Whether we've surrendered to him or not, one day every single knee will bow at his feet. Whether you've taken refuge in his cross, or not, one day every sinner, every human being will stand before the judgment seat of the righteous and just King. So come, bow down, pay homage, enjoy the peace and prosperity that He has purchased for you with His blood because He loved you before the foundation of the world. Sing a better Hosanna than the crowd on the first Palm Sunday. Praise the King. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that Your name would be hallowed in this place. Lord, we pray that Your name would be exalted Holy Spirit, we invite you now to just soften our hearts to receive this truth, that we would see the glory of Christ, that we would bow with every fiber of our being 
before the King of Kings, the one who blows away our expectations, who's far greater, better, more powerful than we can imagine. Help us to see his glory. Help us to bow. Lord, we pray that as we go this week, we would be a people who proclaim him to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the Jesus of the Scriptures, to the glory of your name, Father, for our good, Lord, and for the glory of the nations, for all people across from sea to sea. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Worship team.